Hey, it's the Reparadigms Podcast. Today is episode two in our How to Read the Bible series, and we're talking about intrabiblical context, how the context within the Bible illuminates how to read the Bible. Last time we talked about why we're trying to understand authorial intent. Mm. Talked about the need to understand the biblical authors within their own context if we want to be able to understand authorial intent. Now, we're going to talk about a couple different types of biblical context. Uh, this week, we're going to talk about intra-biblical context. So, we're pretty lucky that when we want to look at the context of any biblical writer so that we can better understand their intent, I think the primary source of context we've got is the Bible itself. It may seem a little contradictory to say, oh, we're going to kind of look at the Bible as a whole piece and understand any of one of the writings within the context of the whole Bible, and to say we're trying to understand authorial intent. The only reason that those two things are not in contradiction at all is because when you start looking at what the biblical authors are doing, what you see is that they are consistently tied into the bigger story of Scripture. Yeah, the biblical authors tend to be very familiar with the writings that are now found in the Bible that came before them and intentionally using the same vocabulary, talking about the same themes or whatever, tying themselves into that Jewish tradition. I said this last time, that's what Tim Mackey calls hyperlinking. And I think it's a really helpful concept. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when we're looking at trying to understand any piece of scripture in its context, we need to be looking both at this kind of big context, this context of the rest of the scripture, because the authors are very aware of that. And we also need to just be aware of the near context of any scripture. If somebody's going to write you a letter, somebody's going to put together any kind of piece of literature, if they're doing so with an actual intent about the whole piece, then you want to be taking in that whole piece to try to see what that author's trying to do. Yeah. So if you're going to look at like a narrative section of scripture, don't just be tearing a little chunk of that, that story out. You want to look at the bigger narrative. If you're going to be reading a gospel, I think it makes sense to try to read the whole thing. Mm. Uh, I looked at this yesterday. For an average reader to read through a whole gospel would take about an hour. Like That's just not that much time. I think it's kind of strange to me that we're so used to not doing that. But I only read the Bible for five minutes a day, so how am I going to do that? <laughs> that's true. Yeah, if you do five minutes a day, it's going to be tough. Maybe you gotta, you've got either got to read 20 times faster or maybe read a little longer. Uh, if you're going to read one of Paul's letters, like we love to take just a verse or two out of Paul, any of the New Testament letters. Like Those would not take very long at all to read. That would probably only be 10, 15 minutes. Go take a look at what he's doing in the whole letter. Because the Bible is not just a collection of assembled inspirational statements. Mm. I think sometimes people have this kind of like recipe book approach to the Bible mm. where they'll just go look at any sentence or a little chunk and just be like, okay, I'm going to try to take inspiration from this. You know, in a recipe book, one recipe is not necessarily, doesn't have any actual relationship to the recipes around uh, it, right? Yeah. It's legitimate to take a recipe out of a recipe book and share that or do whatever you want it's with a, it. <laughs> it's legitimate to take a recipe out of context <laughs> in a recipe book because it's not supposed to refer back to all the other recipes. Exactly. <laughs> it's not okay to do that with sections of the Bible. Hmm. I like that image, recipe book. That's actually mm -hmm. helpful. So don't do the recipe book. Don't do the recipe book thing. Don't just don't snip little pieces out of this and be like, ah, oh, this is my verse of inspiration for yeah. the day. <laughs> Especially like the letters or something. What an odd thing to do if I wrote you a letter or something or, you know, a letter of condolence or something. Yeah. And you just took a word or a <laughs> phrase from that letter and you just thought about that <laughs> and that only. 
It'd just be a, a little strange. I'd actually be frustrated with you. I'd be like, did you read the whole thing? Like, yeah. do you understand what I was trying to communicate? Yeah. If I was No, with- I was really stuck on the second paragraph. If I was wearing a t-shirt with like one sentence out of that letter and you were like, did was the letter comforting to you? I'd be I, miffed by that. I, I would was actually like, yeah. not be happy. I was like, well, this verse, I like this verse a lot. I share this with a lot of people. I didn't read the rest of the letter. I don't know what context it was sitting in. But yeah, that'd be a problem. <laughs> be careful not to take this recipe book approach. Uh, and then also looking at this, what I'll call the far context of scripture here. So understanding what the authors are doing within this larger story. And the reason we want to do this is because it's clear that the authors of the Bible are intentional about the fact that they are doing this. If you've ever been reading through the Bible and you're like, wait, parts of this seem repetitive or like, I feel like I've heard some of this type of language before, or why do they keep talking about this thing that happened in the past? If the Bible feels repetitive when you're reading it, I think you're exactly right. Mm -hmm. Later authors are kind of obsessed with earlier pieces of scripture. A few examples, writers will frequently look back to the creation story as a way of like recognizing God or glorifying his name. When the prophets are shouting at the people and telling them to remember God, they're always telling them to remember God because of what he's done in their history. The fact that God took Israel as a nation out of Egypt is like a big idea that they keep heralding over and over throughout the prophets. You know, remember what God did for you when he came and took you out of Egypt. Mm -hmm. The Gospels, Matthew and Luke, both begin with genealogies that go back into the history of Israel. Luke goes all the way back to Adam. And then John, when he starts his gospel, he starts off with an echo of the creation story. Hmm. So you read John and you're like, oh, it feels kind of like I'm reading Genesis 1 here, but yeah. with a new twist on it. The book of Revelation, you mentioned this, ends with a restoration of Eden. So if you you read this first couple chapters of the Bible, you read the last couple chapters of the Bible, it's pretty clear that John recognizes that he's writing about the completion of a story that began a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Specifically, when you start looking at the New Testament, you find that the New Testament authors are in a lot of ways obsessed with the Old Testament. It's their favorite book, and they <laughs> they write about it a lot. Their, their favorite collection of books. Exactly. Call it a library. Their favorite library. Thank you. Depending on exactly how you count this, it's a little subjective when you get into these numbers. But there's a few hundred direct quotations of the Old Testament, so where the New Testament author will say, uh, as it is written, or yeah. the prophet said. And that happens we'll... all the time at the beginning of Matthew, I'm thinking off the top of my head. Yep. Yeah. So, you'll get a lot of these. There's a few hundred of those. If you look at places where the New Testament authors are going to like repeat a small phrase or maybe like include a few words that look like they're very much supposed to be pointing back to an Old Testament passage... The number of those in the New Testament can come in anywhere between about a thousand and four thousand. Oh man! Depending on how how willing you are to count, it gets a little subjective. Sure, and we call that what like Old Testament allusions or something. Yep. Yeah, so you'll get kind of quotations, partial quotations, allusions. People organize these a little differently. That's okay. Not super important. Sure. But just for the sake of talking through this, we're going to say there's about two thousand of those in the New Testament. If you've got a printed version of the New Testament that's about four hundred pages long. You should expect five times per page on average to be seeing the New Testament authors alluding to the Old Testament. Wow. So they're pointing back at something from mm-hmm. the Old Testament. Maybe they're directly quoting, they're alluding, a little partial phrase, something about the story they're telling. They're using Old Testament language and imagery to help them make their point. So if we call all of those references back, if we call those hyperlinks, mm-hmm. If we're reading the New Testament, we should expect to see about five blue hyperlinks every page linking us back to something in the Old Testament. 
which yep. if we go back and look at it, will help us gain context for that New Testament passage. Exactly. Yeah. We start to see that the history, the themes, and the language that are used in the what we call the Old Testament are really deeply formative to how and what these later authors are trying to communicate. Mm. We've been going through Matthew, so I'm going to talk about Matthew a little bit here. Yeah. He emphasizes the fact that he's going to use biblical language and themes to show that Jesus is fulfilling this biblical history of Israel. And Matthew writes this, and he, he emphasizes the fact that Jesus is doing this to help his readers understand that they're living out this biblical story too. Yeah. We talk about having a historical religion, and I think that was kind of top of the mind for a lot of these New Testament authors. Hmm. They see Jesus culminating part of this story, and now they're writing these letters to help the people they're writing to see the way that they're living in this story that goes way back. I mean, there's a reason John goes back to the beginning of creation at this and he shows, hey, this Jesus that I get to write to you about, he's been there since the very beginning. Mm. This story that you are now getting to live a small part of is the story of all of creation. Yeah. And they thought it was true. I mean, like this is a true worldview. Mm -hmm. They did not, the biblical authors and New Testament authors did not think themselves to be inventing a new sort of individualistic religion that would make their hearts feel good. Yep. They thought they were living in the true story. Yes. Yes. It's the, it's the true story. I love the way you put that. It's not just some therapy club. So if you're missing Nothing out on Nothing wrong this, with therapy clubs. No, I'm just saying that's <laughs> don't restrict Christianity. Right. So if you're missing out on all this and you're not tuned in to what the authors are doing or you're not willing to pay attention to it, you're going to really miss out on the story. You're going to end up with kind of a hollow shell of the Christian story if you're not willing to see what the authors are doing by mm -hmm. looking back into the Old Testament and the history and the themes going on there. Back to our little thought experiment we had about this business letter yeah. written in China in this, yeah. the second century. So imagine in this letter, you've gotten it translated um, and you've dealt with some experts. You've learned the language a little bit. You, you're able to understand what the letter says beginning to end. And as you're reading through this, you see references in this letter to things like, oh, you know, just like back in the fish oil deal. Or let's make sure that this time around, we don't make the same mistake we made last year when we bought all that fabric. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we got the wrong color or something. Something went badly. Right. There would be very specific details in that letter, obviously. Yes. <laughs> They'd just completely be lost on us, of course. <laughs> yeah, for sure. We, You read through that letter, you'd be like, yeah, okay, I might understand the language, but there's clearly a lot of history going on here that I don't get. And you're saying we just don't share the context. Exactly. With yeah. the recipient of that letter. Yep. And the letter itself would give you some clues as to where to go look for context. Oh, interesting. Okay. Kind of interesting. Imagine a couple other quotes out of this letter. We'll finally get some benefit from that bargain we struck in the mountains last year. <laughs> yeah. You know, we made that deal. It's finally got to pay some dividends. Or maybe I trust that Kevin's boy will honor the contract our grandfather made with his. <laughs> Not sure there's many Kevins in inland China in 134. <laughs> <laughs> Who's to say? I, I certainly don't know. But it'd be pretty clear that if you're going to understand what the author of this business letter is trying to do, you'd want to go understand all these other events that are being referenced. If you could get your hand on other sets of letters or business documents between these two business partners, you'd be like, oh, that would be absolute gold for helping me understand what's going on in this letter. And if you really, really wanted to understand this letter that you've got, you would be pretty excited, I think, about getting to go read all of the other letters Maybe if you're lucky, you could even go find letters from the grandparent of the person who authored this letter, like find some of his business deals. Mm -hmm. and, and if those business deals are getting referenced later, understanding all of this context is going to be 
super helpful for helping you understand what is really going on in this letter. Yeah, for sure. So just the same way with the Bible. If you're going through anything in the Bible and you're seeing references to other events that maybe you aren't real familiar with, often those events are going to be the events recorded in the biblical history. Mm -hmm. So go take a look at that stuff. Mm -hmm. When we start looking at biblical context specifically here, moving back from our little thought experiment, I think some of the ways that we see biblical context influencing the way later authors are writing and what they're trying to say is through history, themes, and language. So history we've touched on a little bit. Obviously, the biblical authors recognize that they're writing into a long story. You know, This is the way God has actually been working in the world through Israel. And they see that what they're telling is a new part of the story. They're encouraging their audiences to come live their part of this story. I think a cool example of this is in Acts chapter 6. So Stephen is brought before the Sanhedrin, and he's been accused of saying that Jesus is going to destroy the temple and change their customs. Hmm. And he gives a super long reply, and he doesn't just start trying to explain why he's doing these things and what's been going on you know, right then and there. No, his reply starts with describing God's calling of Abraham <laughs> and then retells Jewish history all the way through Solomon's building of the temple. Because he sees what's going on with Jesus as fulfillment of this ancient history of Israel. Yep. I think that's pretty cool that when he's demanded that he come up and explain himself, he's like, all right, well, perfect. I'm going to explain myself by reminding you guys all of this history so yeah. that you can see where this story has been leading. And the arc of his argument is, here's our shared history as Jews, and I'm on the right side of that history, and you guys are not. Mm -hmm. That's his defense. <laughs> yep. Themes is another one. Biblical authors will use these themes that get repeated throughout scripture, and they're going to do a lot to help connect stories. Sometimes a, a New Testament author can remind you of an Old Testament story or an event without having to actually explicitly say anything about it. When Jesus tells all these parables, you see a lot of garden imagery. Jesus doesn't ever have to say, hey, part of my mission here is restoring human vocation like to what you had in the Garden of Eden. He doesn't have to say that because he can keep showing it over and over throughout the parables with all this garden imagery. With Jesus and then with the church, you start seeing a lot of temple and priestly imagery used. Yeah. And that has a rich history for the Israelite people that's described in the Old Testament. Right. If you're not familiar with any of that, you're going to start missing a lot of the significance of this type of imagery used. Yeah, or you'll misinterpret it altogether. Yep. It's actually really easy to misinterpret it. We read in, I think it's like First Peter where he calls the church the building of God, the temple mm. of God. And yeah, if I didn't have downloaded in my mind the temple history and what it represented in the Old Testament and then onto Second Temple Judaism and then Jesus coming on the scene, I, I would be bereft of context to really understand what Peter means by calling the church of God the temple of God. Yeah, you'll be totally lost. Uh, and like you said, it's easy to fill in some idea that's not quite right and right. end up with a misunderstanding. My, my natural intuition will not be to sit with that and be like, ah, I don't know what this is talking about. My natural inclination would be to fill in the meaning with just something that's already in my in my brain. Yep. And that way I'll walk away feeling more satisfied that I got something out of the Bible that day. Yeah. Maybe you're thinking of modern priesthood or for temple, the only thing you can think of is Indiana Jones, the Temple of Doom. <laughs> like, you know, it's inevitable that you're going to fill in some understanding there as best you can. So if that understanding isn't grounded in the Old Testament so that you're sharing the context mm. of the biblical writers, it's going to be really hard to 
understand what they're intending to do. So we got history, themes, and lastly, just language. Um, biblical authors are going to connect stories and connect ideas using specific words and phrases. Mm. You see, we talk about all these allusions and partial references in the New Testament, almost 2,000 of these. They like using the language of the Old Testament. Yeah. They're deeply kind of saturated in that thinking. They've grown up that Old Testament just being something that they know super well. And so they're going to continue to use that language and those ideas to communicate things. Um, I think it's cool. You see Adam and Eve in the garden and they're commanded to work and keep. And you see that exact same word phrase used later when God is giving the Levites their commands for the tabernacle. And they were like the priestly lineage, right? Yep. And so that should cue us in that there's something going on here about what the Levites are supposed to be doing that should remind us of what Adam and Eve are supposed to be doing in the garden. And that kind of stuff, if you're really tuned into the language, or if you're, especially if you're hearing these things all the time, are going to jump out at you. It's easy for us to miss today if we're not being a little more careful. And some of this might be lost a little bit in like English translations yep. or any language translations, I guess, of the Bible, because the repeated words would be found more in Hebrew mm -hmm. for the Old Testament. And then maybe if some of that goes on in the New Testament as well, it'd be Greek. But some of that's lost. But But I will say... Like the working and keeping one, that example you gave, that that maintains in English too, actually. So there are a lot of these that do come across in our English translations still. Yeah, for sure. Uh, the language barriers, uh, we'll touch on that a little bit here, okay. but that, that would probably be a whole other podcast know, on its own. For sure. Worth a deep dive, I think. Yeah, I think so. Uh, when John starts his gospel and he talks about Jesus coming and dwelling among us, like that specific word used is the word for building a tabernacle or oh, setting yeah. up a tent just like God did with the Israelites out in the desert. So, though I could understand as a reader that doesn't have any cultural knowledge of what's going on in John chapter 1, I could read that and understand whatever the logos is, or sorry, whatever the word is, it becomes flesh and dwells among us. Mm -hmm. Well, that's cool. That's a cool concept. Whatever that is, that's a cool concept. But now, if I download my understanding of ancient Israelite history, mm -hmm tabernacle and the temple and all that, now all of a sudden that word dwelt becomes infused with greater meaning. Yep. It's very weighty. And like you said, it's, I mean, it's the word for tabernacle. Yep. Yeah. And not only does it, I think, fill in a lot of this idea, but it also does kind of prevent you from wanting to take this word and just go make it mean anything else that you want. Right. Yep. One other one here, the gospel or the word that usually gets translated gospel, is a word that gets used in the Old Testament. It's used a bunch in Isaiah and then hmm. uh, right at the very center of Psalm 68 in a very interesting passage. So, if we're going to understand what the New Testament writers are talking about when they talk about Jesus coming and declaring the gospel and announcing the gospel and Paul announcing the gospel, this is pretty clearly a central term and idea for them. I think we would be pretty remiss not to go take a look at what meaning that word has in the Old Testament and look at the context of that word before we start trying to come up with our own ideas about what it means. That's fascinating. So, the gospel in the New Testament was not a new term or a new concept. No, definitely not. It has a lot of meaning within their cultural context, but it also has meaning within their Old Testament context. Right. And when you say cultural context, are you noting that it was also used like in Roman? Yep. So, there would be some use of that word that you'd have to understand from outside of the Bible. We'll talk about that 
next podcast. Sure, but as there's also loaded meaning within the Bible itself in the Old Testament. Yep. And so I think fascinating. That's already attached to your Bible if you're reading the New Testament. So you'd be crazy not to at least start with that context. Start with that. <laughs> yeah. I've talked a little bit about kind of connections in the language between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's an obvious problem here that I've kind of just skipped over, but we'll address now. And that's that the Old Testament and the New Testament were not written in the same language. Mm. It's the Old Testament written mostly Hebrew, a little mm -hmm. bit of Aramaic. New Testament's written in Greek. Mm -hmm. So, if we're going to say, oh, look, the New Testament authors are using a word or a phrase that matches the way it was used in the Old Testament, obviously, they're not copying words over from Hebrew. So, how do we deal with this issue? Like, how can I say this? Well, at the time of the New Testament, when it was written, even before Jesus came along, uh, there was a translation of the Hebrew Bible, or what we would call the Old Testament, mm -hmm. into Greek, the language that was the most commonly used to that day. Yeah. And this translation was called the Septuagint. Mm -hmm. There's some interesting kind of legend around how this thing got translated. <laughs> yeah. Um, but this is really important for us because if we're going to try to understand the way that the New Testament authors are using the language of the Old Testament, the way that they're using words and phrases to tie mm -hmm. back into the story or to bring new rich meaning into what they're doing, we've got to be able and willing to go look at the Septuagint to see how these word connections are being made. So often... What you're saying in the New Testament, when when a New Testament author is hyperlinking to the Old Testament, very often, maybe most of the time, they're actually linking to the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is the Septuagint. Yep, exactly. That seems important. Mm -hmm. If if we're saying that like language and word plays and stuff like that mean something or provide context for the New Testament author, that seems important to understand what's going on there. Exactly. Yeah. So an example to kind of help make this point. In John 1.14, when he says that Jesus came and dwelt among us, and he yeah. uses this specific Greek word, skene, obviously you're not going to find the Greek word skene anywhere in the Old Testament because it wasn't written in Greek. <laughs> but if you go look at the Septuagint, which mm -hmm. is the Greek translation, what you'll find is that when God comes and builds his temple mm. or to start with his tabernacle out in the desert, that tabernacle is a skene. So we can now use the Septuagint and all of a sudden we've now got a tool that lets us connect all of the language use of the New Testament to the Old Testament. Got it. And I think this is really a central tool um, for any kind of biblical study where you're going to be taking a close look at the way specific words and phrases and ideas are being used. Because when you start looking at this, you see that the New Testament authors are kind of obsessive about the Old Testament mm -hmm. and the language and mm -hmm. the, the history, the themes, the ideas. And so they're going to use these connections through the Greek that they've got into this Greek translation of the Old Testament to show all of these ideas and connections that they're trying to make to their to their readers. So to kind of generalize it, this might not be universally true, but let me just offer this as a general rule. The New Testament authors are obsessed with the Old Testament and referencing it and seeing themselves as fulfilling the story of the Old Testament. And the Old Testament that they're typically using and referencing is actually the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Yep. That might not be universally true, but it's mostly true. Yep. Or true most of the time. I've noticed this actually. I've noticed this because when I read in the New Testament, sometimes I'll look at like the, you know, like the footnotes or some Bibles provide cross-references. Mm -hmm. So, so I'll read in the New Testament, I'll see a cross-reference, and then I'll go back and read that passage that's being quoted in the New Testament. And when I read it in the Old Testament, it's actually a little different language than what I read in the New Testament. 
And it says, it's like my footnote says it's a quotation. Yep. That's a weird phenomena. Mm-hmm. And that happens all the time, actually. And so I think what's going on is probably the New Testament author is quoting not the Hebrew Bible, not the not the Hebrew Old Testament, but a translation of the Hebrew Bible, the Septuagint. And what I have in my English Old Testament is a translation of the Hebrew, not a translation of the Septuagint in English. Yep. That all sounds very complicated, but it sounds like the Septuagint is important. Yeah. If you took something, a Hebrew phrase, and you threw it in Google Translate or whatever, and you translate it first into Greek and then into English, mm-hmm. it might not come out exactly the same as if you just translated it directly from Hebrew to English. That's kind of a very simplified version of what's going on, but the language won't always match. With cross-references, maybe that's not that big of a deal. You can see a New Testament quotation and then go look at the Old Testament quotation. They don't quite match. They're close enough, usually. For sure. That's not a big deal. If you're going to start trying to look at specific word and f- like smaller phrase connections to the Old Testament, where you're not going to get all that cross-reference help, at least from most Bibles, then you really need to be willing to go take a look at the Septuagint specifically. Right, because part of what you said is that there is vocabulary context and theme context in addition to like historical context. Yep. And when you're trying to gain that vocabulary context or theme context for the New Testament author, when you're looking at the specific words or phrases like you're saying, that's when that discrepancy becomes more apparent. Yep. And that's where the Septuagint helps illuminate what's going on in the New Testament. Exactly. Yeah, you'll be able to see themes that are used easily because that's not as tied to specific words. But if you're going to try to understand specific words and phrases, the more granular you want to get, the more necessary it becomes to start being willing to look at the Septuagint specifically. Got it. Yeah. So this can start to feel like a lot of work, Um, (laughs) and sometimes it can be. When we ask the question, well, why don't people want to do this? My goal here is certainly not to focus on just the mistakes that are being made, but I think sometimes calling out some of the issues can help help us understand where things haven't always been done really well. We have, and I'm speaking here to just kind of my, my experience with Christianity, we have an instinct to go directly from the text to application or encouragement. I think that comes out of a good instinct. We want the Bible to shape the way we are going to live or feel or think. Um, and so we we try to do that as fast as we can sometimes. Mm. We'll get Bible studies where maybe we read the text for the first five, ten minutes, and then the last 45, 50 minutes, we're you know, just kind of talking about how we live that out, how this should influence the way we feel. We'll skip or do almost no digging into the actual context mm. of the Bible to understand what it really means. We get really accustomed to just taking the Bible quickly and selectively in small pieces and then focusing on application, which can be problematic if your understanding of those texts isn't right. When I think about the ways that I interacted with the text a lot in you know, kind of a church setting, it's through daily devotionals, mm-hmm. you see inspirational verses. If you are going to be reading the chapter a day, it was kind of the, oh, yeah. the standard that was expected of anybody reading the Bible. Um, and then when sermons are given, it's not uncommon to hear a sermon where you know two, three verses are preached, and it's read the text, focus on application. It's easy to get into this idea that, okay, this is how you're supposed to interact with the text. You read a small piece, and then 
seek for some desired effect in our mm-hmm. life, some change or encouragement. And this really can get to be a problem when our understandings of these texts taken out of context don't match what the authors intended, sometimes really, really blatantly. Yeah. So I, I in my mind, kind of think of this as the Jeremiah 29, 11 problem, hmm. just because this is a verse that I see this done with quite frequently. Right. Obviously, this is not the only verse that has this problem, but this to me is kind of a great example of this. Do you have Jeremiah 29, 11? Yeah. For I know the plans I have for you. This is Yahweh's declaration, plans for your well-being, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. That's a verse I see a lot, whether it's posted or out of context. uh, I see it all over the place. And I think without any context, it's easy to read this verse and get all kinds of warm fuzzies out of it. (laughs) This verse can easily affirm this pre-existing idea that God wants me to achieve all of the things I desire or to have material wealth, to be comfortable. Um, Because if God loves me, obviously that must be what it means, right? Mm. What's interesting though, is when you actually dive into the context of this verse, we find that it has a very different intention than what we often take it to mean. So this verse is written to the Israelite people right before they are taken into exile. Mm -hmm. And we know they're going to be in exile dragged away from their homes for at least 70 years. So the people that Jeremiah is writing this to are all going to be removed violently from their homes and are going to die in foreign lands. Mm. Not a whole lot of people are going to live long enough to get taken into exile and come back. So the vast majority of adults, especially reading this, Mm -hmm. are learning that they're going to never see their homeland again. Yeah, yeah. So this promise to God from God to the people is, first of all, it's a corporate promise. The yous in this verse are all plural. Right. And it's a promise that even though they're going through a terrible situation, each of them as individuals, that God still has a plan for the people, for his chosen people of Israel, and that he's not going to see that plan foiled. No matter how bad it seems for the Israelite people in their current situation, that they should know and be able to trust that God still has good plan for them as a people. So I think it's interesting that this verse in context should help us understand that no matter how bad my situation feels to me, that I can still trust in God's plan, his big plan for all of us together. Yeah, even if the immediate context is exile, that's a rather different meaning than how it's taken when you stick it on a coffee mug. I think the assumption is usually that this is a verse promising immediate prosperity Mm. not (laughs) hope through exile (laughs) yeah exactly and what's really dangerous is that if you take this as like a promise of prosperity what are you left to do when you don't become prosperous you think that god's not with you exactly and so it's easy to create this idea of what this promise means and then when your idea of what this promise means isn't fulfilled to then believe that God isn't faithful to his promises. When in reality, God's promise is that you should and can be faithful even when things aren't going the way that you expected them to. Mm. So you see this with, like I said, a lot of other verses, but this is the one that I see a lot. And the context is very clearly showing us that it should be understood differently than the way it often gets taken when it's ripped out of context. Sure. And when you rip this one out of context in particular... What can end up happening is you walk away with a almost the opposite meaning of what the text has. 
And that is God has, God is with you. God's promises for you will stand firm, though you will immediately (laughs) be in the worst situation of your life. Mm -hmm. And I think often that verse is just taken as, yeah, like you said, if you're prosperous and if things are well for you, (laughs) then that means that's because God's blessing you. Yep. And then the reverse is, yeah, if things aren't well, then God isn't with you. God isn't blessing you. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah. And there's a lot of churches that are wrongly built on that idea. Oh. Hmm. So hopefully we've convinced you a little bit that understanding scripture in its context is important. So, for the purposes of understanding the Bible within this intra-biblical context, how can we start to do this better? Mm. My first suggestion would be to try to take Scripture in bigger pieces, mm-hmm. right? If you're reading a whole chapter, it's harder to take a verse out of context. Yeah. If you're reading a whole book, it's harder to take a chapter out of context. Yeah. So, the more context we're able to take, the better position we'll be in for yeah. understanding Scripture within its proper context. So I mentioned that at average reading speed, a gospel would only take about an hour to read. That isn't that long, I don't think. And even if you're not going to read the whole thing, find ways to listen to it. I found that being able to listen to scripture on my commutes has allowed me to go through much bigger pieces of scripture than I might normally otherwise. As it was intended. Yeah. Maybe we'll talk about that some other time too. (laughs) I think, yeah, scripture was written with the intention to be taken in you know, through people who are hearing it. So, we tend to interact with the text primarily through reading it, which is not, I don't think, a problem. But no, but that's a, that's a rather modern phenomena yeah. to have literacy rates high enough for people to actually have their own Bibles and reading them you know, instead of just hearing them. Literacy rates, post-printing press. Right. Like, there's a lot of the stuff that we take for granted. Thanks, Gutenberg. <laughs> so, when you're reading anything, try to identify the location of this piece within a bigger story, right? So, if you're going to Look at a portion of a narrative. Make sure you understand what's going on with the rest of the narrative. If you're going to take a piece of a gospel, understand the rest of the gospel. Mm -hmm. If you're going to try to take an argument out of a New Testament letter, make sure you at least understand the rest of the arguments going on in that letter. Yeah. what What the goal of the whole letter is. Look for big literary structures and major themes. So I think it's been interesting going through Matthew and seeing the way he's got this broken up into five very distinct sections. And seeing the way that those sections are broken up can be helpful because these big sections of teaching now, and then the sections of Jesus' action and ministry Mm -hmm. that immediately follow these have some interesting connections. Yeah, And being tuned into that helps me to understand what Matthew's trying to show me. In addition to just reading the Bible yourself, look for resources that summarize like literary flows, main themes, big sections of scripture. There's a lot of really cool tools out there that do that really, really well. You know, a five-minute introduction to a book of the Bible mm-hmm. can do a lot to help you understand, okay, how is this organized? What's this intention? Who wrote this? Why? When? Where? And that can do a lot, I think, to help us better understand the context of Scripture. For sure. After you've looked at Scripture on this kind of big, wide level, you've got to be willing to go deep. We talked about these New Testament authors who have all of these little cross-references and these words they use that are meant to point you back into sections of the Old Testament. So, if you're not super familiar with those Old Testament passages, like if you're not seeing a quotation out of Hosea 2 and you don't immediately understand all the context of Hosea 2, then you're going to miss out on what this New Testament author is saying unless you're willing to go back and take some time 
and learn and understand what's going on in Hosea 2. Yeah, so and, get yourself like a Bible with cross-references in it or something that lists possible allusions and things like that of the Old Testament. And then when you see those cross-referenced, instead of just reading the quote or allusion that Matthew has or whatever, go and just read Hosea real quick and get familiar with it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, seriously. You should expect anytime you're studying the New Testament to spend a fair bit of time reading and studying the Old Testament Probably, too. It's ended up being almost most of the time as we've done a Matthew study with our friends. Yeah. It's kind of funny. Yeah. I found in my prep for Matthew, most of the time, if I'm going to go through a chapter of Matthew and I'll work through the cross references and the quotations, I'll end up probably reading through 20 or 30 chapters of the Old Testament. <laughs> I know. Just to get the context around the quotations he's using. Right. So, if he's going to point at a specific verse out of Hosea 11.1, 1, in order to understand that, I want to make sure I understand, all right, what's going on in Hosea broadly? Yeah. And then what's the immediate context of, you know, this kind of chapter before, the full chapter of chapter 11, chapter 12? Like, where is this falling mm -hmm. within the story? It gets exciting. It might sound intimidating, but it's actually rather exciting. I really think so. Going through a book that way does take a lot more work and it's more time. But ultimately, it's been way, way more exciting than just reading through it and being like, okay, yeah, I'm not really sure about that. Mm -hmm. Move on. Mm -hmm. Taking that time and seeing what Matthew's doing gets really exciting. He's like, oh, wow, I see all the very cool connections he's making into the Old Testament. And there's times you're left going, wait, how does he connect that to that? He's like, does he really see Jesus as fulfilling yeah. this much of Israel's history? Yeah. Like, it's almost hard to grasp, but you start to see this much bigger, grander vision of Jesus that Matthew has yeah. than I would just reading through his gospel without understanding what's going on here. Right. Yeah. So, if your Bible has cross-references listed, take the time to go through those things. Almost every Bible will show you direct quotations and where those are from, that kind of like two or 300 in the New Testament. A good study Bible will show you a lot of the additional like partial references. You can go online and find lists um, that are organized by New Testament book of all of the, like the allusions and possible allusions. So for a book like, you know, like Matthew, because we've been going through that, you might be able to go print off a list of 200, 300 places where Matthew is saying something that looks like he might be referencing an Old okay, Testament. Yeah. So that will let you find even more of this than just a, like a cross-reference list in a study Bible would. And then checking key words too. So we talked a little bit about this. If you're going New Testament to Old Testament, you're going to have to be willing to do this through some kind of a tool that lets you utilize the Septuagint. Mm -hmm. You do not have to be able to read any Greek to use these tools. Right. They're online, they're free, and they'll allow you to go through for any New Testament verse, look at all of the Greek words behind the English translations, mm -hmm. and with a couple clicks, you can now see every place in the Old Testament that that Greek word was used in the Septuagint. Yep. And you can be doing all of this looking through English translations. So now I'll have a full list of all of the English verses that are translated from verses where the Septuagint is using the same Greek. Mm -hmm. Like This kind of stuff, I think, is really, really helpful. Um, and it's so easy to use. That's what's amazing to me. We are so lucky to live in a time and a place where pulling up this list of, you know, every occurrence of Skene in the Old Testament is super, super easy for us to do. Mm -hmm. And I think that can provide a ton of ability to better understand what the biblical authors are trying to say, because it lets us start to see the way they're tuned into all this Old Testament language and the the meaning that they're trying to kind of port over from the Old Testament into what they're showing you. I think we should actually provide a link in the show notes to a YouTube video, just demonstrating like a five minute video demonstrating some of these tools. Oh, sure. 
that'd be kind of neat. Yeah. Or, or maybe if we find someone else that's doing that, basically that same thing. Yeah. That'd be cool. I, I'm sure there's other tools that do this. The one I use a lot is called the Blue Letter Bible. Mm-hmm. It's just a free online Bible tool that makes all this stuff really, really easy. And I think they've got some good resources on there for showing you how to use all this stuff too. Okay. So we'll see if we can put a video up. If you just want to go look at Blue Letter Bible, you'll figure most of this out yourself. Sure. But when you're going through cross-references or you know any of these tools, what you'll see is a lot of cross-references that will reference other parts of the Bible, sometimes parts of the Bible that are you know also in the New Testament. And that stuff can certainly be helpful. I would say as kind of a first instinct, be willing to look backwards first. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we know for sure that all the New Testament authors had the Old Testament mm-hmm. available to them. Mm-hmm. And that's the primary language that they're trying to bring out and show in what they're writing in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Matthew's not referring to language that's used in Paul's letters or in Revelation. Yeah, or pro- probably very not. likely not. Yeah. 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 I mean, maybe Paul was written first, but you know, some of those letters were written before Matthew, but we're not really sure. We know for sure Matthew was using the Old Testament. So it's not a good assumption to think that the writers of the New Testament had the New Testament in front of them. <laughs> this doesn't even quite make sense. Exactly. So the those Old Testament passages are gonna be a lot more primary. useful for understanding. Yeah, they'll be primary yes. for understanding Matthew over other stuff that Paul wrote. Maybe what Paul writes is helpful too, but start with the Old Testament. The objection here might be that this starts to feel like a never-ending pursuit. Like If you're actually going to go pursue all of these cross-references, if you're going to go try to understand all of those cross-references in their context, and you're going to start doing these word studies that maybe pull you into a whole bunch more contexts, it would be easy to say, well, this feels like studying the Bible might become a never-ending pursuit. Amen, brother. Yes. (laughs) Welcome. Yes, that's exactly what it is. It's a never-ending pursuit and one that is more worth doing than maybe anything else we'll pursue in our lives. Hmm. It is incredibly helpful in understanding, first of all, the the biblical authors for sure, and then understanding these big truths that they're speaking to in scripture. Because just like their audiences, we also are living a real part of this story. Mm -hmm. This story that covers everything that has happened from Genesis to the end of Revelation, and we are somewhere in there, and understanding this story better is only going to help us want to live it out. Mm Mm-hmm more truthfully. Mm -hmm. So those are some of the ways you can be doing it on your own. Fortunately, you don't have to do all of this on your own. There's a ton of really good, really good material that's intended to help us understand biblical context better. Yeah, I think we'll focus in on this more in an independent episode that just talks about these new tools and resources and discoveries and things like that. Yeah, for sure. That help us do context study. Yeah, I would right now just say if you're interacting with anybody who's teaching or showing. Yeah, your favorite teacher or preacher. Exactly. Make sure that you're looking for people who are looking at the history, themes, language. Find people who are doing this. Yes. Right. If somebody's teaching a section of the New Testament and they're not consistently looking back at Old Testament mm-hmm. to help you understand what the New Testament authors are doing, that should be a red flag that they're missing out on a big part. Of sure. This and it's not to say they're like way off or something or they're heretical or whatever. It's just to say, be careful. They're probably not all that grounded. There's better people to listen to. Exactly. And be careful that the people who are doing this work are doing this in the original languages. Don't be trying to do all this work of you know finding connections between the old testament and the new testament in just english mm. or even just in latin you know just uh. because it was used for a long time by the church doesn't mean it's a legitimate tool this was sure. not used until long after any of the biblical authors mm. so be looking for people who are 
using the Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek languages mm-hmm. of the actual Bible and are emphatic about finding the ways that authors are connecting their story into the rest of scripture yeah. and then showing us the way that that helps us better understand what they mean. That's my plea for interbiblical context. Yeah, I like it. Yeah, that's perfect. I think that outlines a lot of the key ways that we can start reading the Bible better. And this is something that anyone can do. Nothing that you've said today requires a PhD in Second Temple Judaism or anything like that. It also doesn't require any purchasing of any special materials or resources that cost hundreds and hundreds of dollars. Everything that you said is accessible to your average reader in the United States of America, at least in 2023. Yep. Accessible and very easy to use and well worth it. Hey, it's the Reparadigmed Podcast. Today is episode two in our How to Read the Bible series, and we're talking about intrabiblical context, how the context within the Bible illuminates how to read the Bible. 